This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 17th of September 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, the cultural historian and writer Gavin Plumley will be here with me in the studio to flick through the day's papers. Also ahead, Andrew Muller will take a look at the week's weirder stories. We learned that a well-loved amusement jetty in Southwold had shuttered, possibly submitting to peer pressure. <sighs> That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina. First, though, here are the day's headlines. On Friday, President Vladimir Zelensky accused Russia of committing war crimes in Ukraine's northeast and said it was too early to say the tide of the war was turning despite rapid territorial gains by his forces this month. A landslide triggered by heavy rains killed at least 14 people and injured seven more in western Nepal, officials said today, as rescue workers searched the disaster site to try and find a further 10 missing people. And Britain's King Charles and his siblings stood vigil by the coffin of their mother, Queen Elizabeth, in Westminster Hall last night, where the coffin of the late monarch has been lying since Wednesday. Tens of thousands of mourners continue to queue to pay their final respects during her lying in state. Her Majesty's funeral will take place on Monday. And I'm joined in the studio by the cultural historian and writer Gavin Plumley. Good morning to you, Gavin. Good morning, Georgina. It's lovely to have you here again. Uh, of course, there is only really one one big story, and and this is the 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 death of Her Majesty uh, Queen Elizabeth II and her funeral. But what's become increasingly odd about this is that the the story is now about capital letters the Q. It's quite incredible. I mean, visually, it's amazing. And I think sort of philosophically, it's um, really quite um, an extraordinary thing to ponder. The It is a physical thing, but I think it's more an existential thing. And there's a great piece in The Guardian at the moment by Stephen Reicher, who's a professor of psychology um, in St. Andrews, and specifically um, focusing on crowd psychology, um, which I I didn't know it was a discipline until now, but obviously these things spawn so much. Um, and he's saying, you know, we're in mourning, um, but there's been this rather homogenous picture of our mourning that's been built up. You know, that, that everything has been characterised by us all pouring our grief into one thing, and that's um, evinced by this snaking cue down the length of the Thames. Now 24-hour wait, I believe. I mean, the tenacity of those people standing there is absolutely to be lauded. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, it makes Alton Towers look like child's play. It really <laughs> does. Um, but the thing I think in this picture of grief that Reicher is looking at in The Guardian and pondering, you know, what does drive someone to stand and stand and shuffle for 24 hours, um, David Beckham and all sorts of other people included, is, I think, much more complex. Yes, there is this picture of, 
unified mourning for the monarch and the monarchy and that he describes. But the one thing that I don't think Reicher does get in his piece in The Guardian is actually that I think we're mourning as a nation for something much more profound, which is the absence of a leader who can lead. And I think the greatest irony of the whole thing is where they're queuing to. They're not queuing to Buckingham Palace. They're not queuing to Windsor Castle. They're queuing to Parliament. And that is where she's being held in state. That is where they view her. And as well as seeing a coffin for uh, a now dead monarch, they're also probably going in search of someone else in that building who can actually give us a moral compass, give us a direction. And it's really clear when you look this morning at the, the FT, the front page of the FT has a huge picture of the queue, the Thames, every, you know, a really beautiful photo of London and this united grief. And then right underneath it, it says the pound hits 37-year um, low against the dollar. And in The Guardian this morning, the view from Europe has it absolutely perfectly, joining these two stories. When the morning ends, reality will hit hard. Yeah. And it's, I think that's, you know, there is a sense of um, performance about this grief. Um, we can't think it's a tragedy when a 96-year-old woman dies. She had an absolutely terrific life and she gave of that amazingly. So I think what we're looking at is a, a kind of existential void, really. And of course, King Charles will, I hope, fill that void to some degree, but he's not an elected official. It's not on him, as it were, to fill that void. Um, it's on our it's on our politicians, our democra democratically elected politicians, and my goodness, they're found wanting. They, they really are. And I mean, so for instance, um, uh, Matthew Paris in, in The Times today, the Liz Truss era won't be a disaster, just a mess, he says. Even if the PM thinks she sees a clear path to growth, her lack of skills, strategy or Tory support will hobble her, he says. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, lots of people were talking a week ago at the proclamation that there she was... And, I mean, what an elevation as a Prime Minister to be, you know, 48 hours, as it were, having seen the Queen, that you're then absolutely centre stage within the, the ritual of all of this. But actually, I think that kind of spotlight on someone so lacking is, is, is dangerous. It's really dangerous uh, for the Tories. And in The Guardian as well, it's saying, you know, that this kind of alignment of Parliament and, and monarch at the moment is only going to uh, show the vacuity of what's going on in the Conservative Party. I think the only person who really came out uh, smelling of roses last weekend was Penny Mordaunt, and that was largely because of her Alice band. <laughs> Yes, there's been a lot of kind of uh, uh, funny commentary too. I, I mean, for instance, uh, some wags are calling central London at the moment Mourn Hub, which is <laughs> amusing. Um, but, but I am very, very surprised by some of the people joining the queue, people who I wouldn't have thought thought of themselves as kind of forelock-tugging subjects, because in a way this is what it's about. It's we are subjects and we are, 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 are paying homage to, to, our, to our monarch. I think it's also just historical, isn't it? I mean, I would count myself half Welsh, half Republican, um, but that also means I'm half English, half monarchist I suppose and for me watching it I've I have been incredibly moved I've not uh, not only by the visuals but by um in fact the commentary of our of our mutual friend Petrock Trelawney has done an absolutely extraordinary job this week 
Because it is momentous. You know, when a 70-year reign ends, we have to mark it. Whether we like the monarchy or not, and of course there are those who have expressed their opinion in that direction too this week, but there is something historical. And there is, as I was seeing as I was walking in on the BBC, a group making their way to ABBA Voyage with Prosecco on the train and then saying, well, after we've done the ABBA, we're going to go and see the Queen, as if it's some kind of day out. But then the changing of the guard has been that. We, the trooping of the colour has been that. There is something theatrical about it. And my goodness, we do theatre brilliantly. Yeah, no, well, that's absolutely true. I mean, I have to tell you that my uh, my ancestor was Algernon Sidney, who was the political philosopher who championed political rights against arbitrary power. And, of course, he was convicted uh, of treason in, I think it was 1683, and he was executed by Charles II. So <laughs> perhaps that's why I don't feel the need to go and see Charles III. Yeah, I mean, that, that family history will dictate certain things, and that's a pretty powerful message from the past. <laughs> uh, but it is... Uh, if somebody were writing the cue, the novel, you'd have to kind of give it to some kind of science fiction writer, wouldn't you? And the cue would take on a life of its own and perhaps start governing the country. Yeah, I, all, I mean, it is Orwellian, isn't it, as well? It has that feel of, you know, a Fritz Lang film as well, that we we just kind of march towards the machine. And um, I mean, it's... But I think it is also a beautiful thing as well. It's very easy to be cynical about these things. Um, and and to see that community spirit um, is, is, is moving too. And so I, I sort of vacillate between thinking it is the most ridiculous um, sort of manifestation of grief and also the most powerful too. Because, mm. uh, you know, come Monday, when the doors are shut and the coffin starts to move, we don't gain access. It is just for heads of state as they all fly in and are bust yeah. around London. And I suppose that that's, you know, that's the most powerful thing about it. It is a it is an opportunity for public grief. And, and there's something really moving about... Um, synchronicity about people doing stuff together even if, if it's the marching if it's the playing of music even of this 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 collective grief the fact that it does foster this feeling of all being in it together well we see that every christmas don't we with things like the carols from kings in cambridge that that sort of uh, ritual is really important it it galvanizes our thoughts and and in some ways it does our thoughts for us and there is perhaps a, a feeling of things being imposed from the top about this and that we just follow suit. But I also think that ritual roots us at a time when we look to the future and it feels very, very scary indeed. Even the coming months feel very mm. scary. That this uh, anchoring in the past with these incredible costumes and the trumpets and the and the language, you know, my liege and lord that we heard last Saturday, I it, it is Shakespearean, um, and for no accident did uh, King Charles III quote from Shakespeare, not once but twice mm. in his early addresses. It, you know, that is our nation, um, uh, whether we like it or not. And I think those echoes are crucial, really crucial. Um, 
and because it allows us to know what we can move away from as well as what we can move towards. Mm, it's also, I mean, John Donne is, is appropriate here too, isn't he? No man is an island. And the, the Queen, of course, was a great stateswoman. Uh, and that's one thing that she will be hugely remembered for is her international relations. She was head of the Commonwealth uh, and, uh, of course, met every world leader almost, I think. <laughs> um, and there's been a particularly interesting meeting of world leaders this week. Yes, in Samarkand, in Uzbekistan. And, I mean, I think if anyone was thinking that the Queen's death, coming so hot on the heels of that of Mikhail Gorbachev, um, dictated that the world order was shifting, that things are moving on, and indeed were fearful of this meeting between um, Vladimir Putin and um, Xi of China, I think we need to think again. It's much more subtle. There are shifts going on, but I think Putin's gamble with the war in Ukraine is is quickly coming to haunt him. Um, I mean, according to the South China Morning Post, his problems with the war have created this uh, perfect vacuum for Beijing to fill. I mean, Xi took the opportunity being in Kazakhstan, being in Uzbekistan to sign deals um, with local leaders and those are important countries. They seem so far away, perhaps, from us here in a studio in London. But, you know, they are, um, well, placed between so many of these powers um, and constantly moving between China and Russia. And at the moment, China seems uh, to be winning out on that. And indeed, another one of Putin's supposed allies in India has also had grave concerns. Erdogan in um, Turkey, likewise. Putin's on his own. Um, yes, there is a sort of vague affinity with um, these nations. I mean, there was a wonderful headline in yesterday's Metro um, here in London, which had a photograph of them all meeting saying, spot the despot, which I uh, couldn't <laughs> help but giggle at. But, you know, really, Putin is completely tone deaf. Um, he's not listening. And in the Moscow Times this morning, he says, my plan is not subject to adjustment. We are in no hurry. There will be no changes in Ukraine, despite the fact that now pretty much the entire world is telling him to stop. Mm. And I mean, China has thrown Russia an economic lifeline since the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but the disruption has also been to the benefit of China, too. It's positioned itself as a, an alternative market for Russian goods and as a major customer for cheap Russian fuel. So China is not without self-interest here. No, I mean, I think the one thing we can absolutely get guaranteed with Xi is it is entirely um, about self-interest. Um, but the self-interest is also one that has magnetic pull within Central Asia at the moment, and that is where Putin is ultimately losing. Yeah. Let's turn to Andrew Muller now, because, as usual, he uh, gives us his take on what the past seven days have taught us. We learned this week that there are weeks when this taking a wry sidelong look at the news racket really is a bit of a high wire act without, if you'll indulge us, any sort of net protecting us should we topple from the thrashing shark tank of outraged public opinion. Such are the risks we run for your entertainment. 
We learned, or really concluded, when we contemplated our options that we had to pick one from two. The first, which certainly seemed the easiest, was to direct the ensuing few minutes of satirical jocularity away from the obvious and instead make fun of stuff which had no bearing on or relationship to the obvious. We swiftly learned, however, that this was more difficult than it first appeared, as the obvious appeared to be one of those rare news stories so huge that it caused something of an instant drought of other news, because everybody who in any other week would have been perpetrating any amount of nonsense, daftness and folly was inside watching the obvious on television. But it's a tricky business. Morbidly attentive listeners to these weekly monologues will have noticed that last week's did not appear in its regular time slot. A shame, as it really was one of the funniest we'd ever assembled. Indeed, very arguably the funniest six or seven minutes of radio ever recorded in all of human history, and now you'll never know. While it contained nothing obviously subversive or tasteless, not any more than usually anyway, running it in the circumstances just seemed sort of off. For some reason, let's have the chorus of general muttered agreement. The way forward this week, we eventually decided, was to take a series of swings at the fact that nobody else really quite seems to know how to respond either. This, we reckoned, might bring to bear some wintry and fundamentally inclusive humour upon a period of widespread sorrow, mourning and general discombobulation, and this is obviously by far the more significant consideration, ease us under the radar of those seething witchfinders invigilating against those failing to properly do whatever it is we're all supposed to be doing and yes that other chorus is probably overdue at this point just get on with it So we learned this week that the generally preferred method of showing respect seems to be not doing whatever it is you usually purport to do. And yes, we did have a bit of a think about following this example ourselves, but were concerned that our employers would then have shown their respect by not paying us. Anyway, in not a few cases, if we're honest, and why would we lie, we learned that the connections between the downing of tools and the showing of respect often verged on the outright tenuous. We learned, for example, that Heathrow Airport proposed to show its respect for the late Queen Elizabeth II by cancelling a number of flights, an announcement which will have prompted a great many recent would-be passengers to ponder what else Heathrow has been respecting pretty much all this year. Righto, up and running. Reckon we'll get away with this. We learned that other similarly motivated closures and postponements covered the spectrum from the obtuse to the downright recherche. We learned that Norwich City Council had closed a bicycle rack. We learned that Guinea Pig Awareness Week had changed its date to avoid a clash with the elegiac observances, although, ironically, the mockery generated by this announcement marked the first recorded awareness of Guinea Pig Awareness Week. We learned that a well-loved amusement jetty in Southwold had shuttered, possibly submitting to... Peer Pressure. (laughs) 
And we learned that perhaps no single entity exemplified the bewilderment of the moment quite as poignantly, if not necessarily deliberately, as centre parks, proprietors of holiday resorts for middle-class British or Irish people who cannot be bothered going overseas and who can blame them what with all the respect British and Irish airports have been showing in recent months. We learned in the first instance that Centre Parks plan to close entirely for 24 hours around this coming Monday's funeral, and we learned very shortly afterwards that this announcement had elicited a mildly riotous response from Centre Parks inmates who were not terrifically keen on interrupting their holidays. Let's have a clip evoking an amount of indignation. <sighs> We then learned that Centre Park's Crisis Management Division had hit upon the brilliant solution of allowing visitors to remain on the site but stay confined to their lodges, upon which we also learned that it is apparently too soon for the COVID-19 lockdown nostalgia trip. Let's have an even larger amount of indignation. <laughs> We finally learned that Centre Parks had capitulated to the degree of allowing guests to roam the compound freely, but that nothing would actually be open. It remains unclear to us that any of this, and or the uncountable further such examples, was what she would have wanted. Indeed, during her seven-decade reign, we didn't learn much about what she wanted, which we realise was kind of the idea, but we can at least presume that she might have been quite pleased with the one cohort of Britain that did seem to have some idea how to behave. We learned, because we had the live coverage from Westminster Hall on in the background while we tapped this out, that there's something weirdly affecting about watching an endless queue of random citizenry shuffling silently, curiously and decorously past the unifying totem of their diverse tribe, the hush interrupted only by the clanking and stomping occasioned by the changing of the guard. A nation which has changed beyond recognition, finding something in communing with an institution which barely changed at all. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Very many thanks there to Andrew. And of course, as he's alluding to, uh, Monday, the day of the funeral, is a holiday. And uh, that is uh, obviously out of respect to the Queen. Many things are closing, including, I believe, the passport office, which is a bit slightly disastrous for you, Gavin. Yeah, it was, it was um, uh, due to um, be open in Newport. I phoned them um, up uh, this week to check that I could come and collect my emergency passport, uh, the previous one having expired because of all the changes with the rules following Brexit. Um, but I then got a call about two hours later saying, in fact, they were going to be closed and could I possibly drive down to South Wales and collect it on Saturday afternoon at 2.30. So if you hear a sound at the end of the programme with um, tyres screeching, that's me going down the M4 <laughs> to make sure I can actually get my passport and travel again. So the rest of your day uh, is a lot of driving. For me, it's a lot of books. Uh, and I do just want to tell you about the Queen's Park Book Festival because that's on today and tomorrow in Queen's Park in London. Uh, and at uh, 2 o'clock today, I'll be speaking to Louisa Young about her book, 12 Months in a Day, uh, with Ayanna Lloyd-Banwo uh, about her first novel, when 
When We Were Birds. And both of these are about love and death and ghosts and things. Lots of other fabulous people on as well. Um, uh, Robert Harris, for instance, um, and, and various others. So it's going to be a really literary and fun-packed weekend uh, at uh, Queen's Park Book Festival. And one thing that it seems to, to show to me is that post-COVID... All of these festivals uh, have come roaring back to life and there doesn't seem to have been any kind of dip in, in the appetite of people to, to go to events like this. Not, however, true of theatre in New York. Yes, in the New York Times today, it reports that Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, masterpiece, The Phantom of the Opera, is to close on Broadway after 35 years. An absolute stalwart of... Um, the Rialto, as it's called, it's just... Um, I th- I'm quite shocked, actually. Um, Phantom has been a fixture. It is the longest-running show um, on Broadway. It is still a great draw. It grossed nearly $900,000 last week, but that is not enough to support a very costly show. It was first put into the Majestic Theatre in 1988, it has a large orchestra. It has a lavish production. Of course, there's wonderful um, original designs by the late Maria Bjornsson. And I think it's just proving that post-pandemic, theatre is hard. Um, live performance art is hard to sell, to guarantee an income. I mean, it's very telling, having been in London for the last couple of days, walking around that even the modern behemoth, you know, phantom opened in 1986, a modern behemoth like Hamilton is being advertised around the capital. You can get tickets for Hamilton and, in fact, actually trying to have a break from uh, the news and a break from the um, theatre of mourning um, that is London at the moment. I I took myself to Frozen, the musical, last night uh, for a bit of escapism and there was a good smattering of seats that you could buy at 5.30 in the afternoon And it's not just musicals. I mean, tonight, for instance, you could go to the Roll Up House, you could see Puccini's Madama Butterfly, absolute central repertoire, nothing to frighten the horses. And there are tickets available from £30 to £230. Something's going on here. People aren't booking ahead. People aren't planning. And, of course, producers with great costs, great running costs, like a show like Phantom over in New York are struggling to make ends meet and Mm. they have to be bankers um, and they're not. They're not like they used to be. And do you think that part of this is just nervousness? People do not want to come together in an indoor setting. I think they will... Obviously, there'll be certain demographics that will be fearful of being in close proximity with others. Um, And last night at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, there were... There were, I thought there was a surprising level of mask wearing, actually, um, given the fact that COVID, of course, has not been remotely in the news this week. I think it's also that we've grown so used to being at home. And I think in some ways it is a victim of theatre, opera, ballet, really going for broke on cinematic relays. Um, And that's as available in London as it is elsewhere, as available in New York as it is out in the burbs. And I just wonder whether we've just made stuff far too available and reduced the thrill of the live. And, you know, for me, I'm I'm an avid theatre-goer, I'm an avid opera and ballet-goer, but I'm not booking ahead either. I know those tickets are available. I'm not even planning to go to the Royal Opera House at Christmas to see Nutcracker, which is a thing that my husband and I do every year. 
Because I'm also wondering, well, you know, what is going to happen with COVID? What is going to happen with affordability as well? Um, And those things are playing into lots of people's minds. If you're worrying about your gas bills, are you really going to spend the money that you require for a West End ticket or a Broadway ticket, and Broadway is much more expensive. Mm. And particularly something that that you may need to postpone or cancel completely. Uh, Interesting, you were saying COVID not really in the news this week. Now, one aspect of it that has been, or in fact various people really pushing for it to be, is this National COVID Memorial Wall, uh, because that runs alongside where the queue is. And there's been a bit of an outcry from people saying that the media hasn't covered it, that actually the queue is going past something that has been so central to our lives for, for, for a couple of years now. Uh, and that, in fact, the people in the queue are perhaps disrespecting the wall uh, and everything. It, it's a, I don't know if you've seen it. It's very beautiful. It, it consists of about 150,000 red and pink hearts, uh, all, all stuck sort of along the South Bank. Yeah, by St Thomas's, isn't it? And it's between yeah. Westminster and Lambeth Bridges. And it's very, no, it's incredibly moving. I, I sometimes stay um, uh, down in that corner of town, um, hugely convenient, to, and to walk along the Thames, not, of course, convenient at the moment. And you really are taken aback by, by this wall and the fact that, of course, it is absolutely directly opposite Parliament is is very moving. Of course, it's attached to a hospital which witnessed so many COVID illnesses and um, sadly deaths. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's all part of this national story we, we were talking about earlier. You know, why are we mourning? Why has this event triggered a 24-hour queue? This nation is not in a good place. And the death of the Queen, the accession of the King, the state of Parliament at the moment, and us coming out of the pandemic, whether we're going to shows or not, speaks of a deeply toxic time, to be honest. Mm. And I think uh, when you can't rely on things that have been part of our cultural uh, backdrop for 35 years, or indeed a figure who has been part of our life for 70 years, it does feel hugely impermanent. And is it any wonder that people are clinging to the raft? Yeah, and I mean, we all project our own grief, don't we, about COVID or our own lost loved ones uh, onto this great national event and cope with it in different ways. Uh, some with humour, of course, and some some with a lot of kind of vocal mourning. And it's good to have that sort of mindfulness, that pause, isn't it? And and to reflect on the fact that, that even, even someone like the monarch... Um, has that fragility. You know, they're surrounded by army, navy, air force, costumes, pomp, circumstance, music, and all those things that bind us together, that even she um, is fragile. So actually, I, I think it's very fitting that the queue is going past that wall um, because we are in a very fragile time. Gavin Plumley, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hole. And of course, the programme returns at the same time next week. Uh, and tomorrow's edition of Monocle on Sunday, uh, which airs at 9am London time, will be presented by Emma Nelson. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.